0: You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going grocery shopping around the world. Not really. I wish we could do that. It would be really fun. But we're not quite doing any actual shopping, but we are going to hear about the state of grocery retail all around the world. McKinsey's retail practice has undertaken a huge research effort that encompassed surveys of more than 30,000 consumers and more than 100 grocery CEOs globally about what's happening in grocery and what the future of the sector might look like. And today we're excited to hear from the regional leaders of this research to tell us about what they're seeing in Asia, Europe and North America. Commonalities among those regions, but also the differences in how the grocery sector is evolving in distinct parts of the world. So, let me briefly introduce our three guests and then we will talk all things grocery. First up is Bill All, a partner who leads McKinsey's office in Charlotte, North Carolina. Bill has expertise in a number of retail and CPG topics, including merchandising, category management, and strategy. Bill, thanks for being here. Great to be here. You know what, can each of you also tell us one thing that you always buy at the grocery store? So for me, it's seltzer water and some kind of dried fruit, right? Every trip to the grocery store, I buy those two things. What is it for you, Bill? What can't you leave the grocery store without?
1: You always have to get cream cheese. You always have to get eggs and some sort of grainy bread.
0: Next up is Dimfka Kuypers, a senior partner who leads our retail and consumer practice in Asia. Dimfka is a Dutch national who's been based in Singapore for the past five years. Dimfka, nice to have you with us.
2: Very nice to be here, Monica. And what's one thing that you never leave the grocery store without? I actually never leave without stone berries because it's the best indication of the supply chain of a grocer. Daniel Loibley
0: is a senior partner based in Zurich. He co-leads McKinsey's retail practice in Europe, and his areas of expertise include strategy, store operations, and advanced analytics. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Hey, Monica. Tell us what your grocery must-have is.
3: It's a dark uh, Swiss chocolate. I eat at least a pack a day, so uh, whenever I go shopping, I eat a lot of them.
0: Oh my gosh, that sounds great. So all of us to some extent are grocery shoppers, right? We're all we're all consumers. So let's start this conversation with the consumer. Broadly speaking, when consumers shop for groceries these days, they notice that prices are higher, right? So consumers are they're trying to stretch their budgets and they've become more value conscious as your grocery reports have said, but you've also said they want to eat healthier and they care about sustainability. And there's some, some tension between those things, right? Because healthier foods and sustainable products tend to be not the cheapest options. So Bill, let's start with North America. Is the picture that I've painted an accurate picture of the consumer?
1: It is. Um, the bar is raised in terms of what grocers have to do to deliver on value. And uh, you know the consumer really isn't willing to sacrifice what they perceive as, as value in their fresh goods. Um, what you're offering in, in the perimeter of the store and in center store. And so um, I think that is the the nature of the challenge um, for many grocers is to figure out how do you deliver on that? The bar's higher. It costs more to do business. Um, the one thing you didn't mention that at least in the U S the consumers continue to accelerate too, is just their demand for e-commerce and e-commerce services, um, which again adds expense to, uh, to many of the grocers in the U S but uh, that that demand is is just as high as um, as the desire for value and for freshness.
2: Yeah, I think if you look at Asia, I think there are a couple of there's no such thing as Asia. We always say they're you know, very distinct countries, and there's a very difference in terms of you know optimism in the consumer and thereby also spending by the consumer, different by country. You know, with Northern Asia typically less optimistic than let's say India, Indian consumers being the most optimistic still about you know, economic recovery after a pandemic and they're willing to suspend. That being said, to your point, inflation is hitting. And unlike at the beginning of the pandemic when people were just worried about availability of product, people do care big time again about value. So I think that's that's number one. I think number two, I think your point about sustainability and health. So there's a lot of stated behavior. So 62% of Indonesian consumers claimed to consume Products that are more healthy and think about their diet and their health when they're uh, buying stuff. Now, I can tell you that was not the case before the pandemic. I can also tell you it's not reflected in the actual uh, purchasing behavior just yet. So I do think there is a bit of a disconnect still between stated on sustainability and health as well as in actual purchasing. I think the third part we see very much, um, which Bill mentioned, is a big trend. I think e-commerce probably started with that is really, really the biggest shift we've seen. Uh, it has actually penetrated uh, populations, part of the population that were not online, particularly the elderly, and it's there to stay. We don't see a reversal um, of people going back to the store. And then finally, um, uh, because of the pandemic, a lot of consumers had to try new stuff uh, and new brands, And actually figured out, hey, they're not so bad. Um, So the ability and the uh, willingness, I would say, to trial new stuff has disproportionately grown uh, in the last few years.
3: So when we look at Europe, I think uh, a lot of the development, as Bill mentioned, for North America is also true in Europe. I think um, the three main things that currently I think the industry are driving, one is really the inflation and cost, uh, labor cost increase we have and general cost increase. The second one is that volumes are really lower uh, as we come out of COVID. And the last one, what you mentioned, the polarization of the consumers. So really that at the very same time, consumers are trading down and becoming more price sensitive and uh, buying more private label on the uh, on one hand. And then on the other hand, really buying more sustainable, healthy products uh, and premium products, also premium quality products on the other hand. And we see this is actually happening at the same time it's mainly the lower income households that really need to uh, trade down and save costs and are becoming much more price sensitive looking more for promotions and for cheaper options uh, and whereas the other households still accelerate actually their spend on healthy and sustainable products um, so it's really basically the, the bottom and the top end of the assortment is growing the fastest as the would say the stand-up brands in the middle um, tend to lose of course when we
0: talk about consumers or grocery shoppers we're not just talking about someone you know standing in a physical store walking up and down the aisles we're also talking about online shoppers and obviously as you've said online grocery skyrocketed during lockdowns, right? More people tried it than ever before, but it's been pretty sticky behavior. People are continuing to do it. And Daniel, in the more advanced online grocery markets in Europe, like the UK, France, the Netherlands, your most aggressive forecasts show that online could account for up to 30% of the food at home market by 2030. And for example, in the most aggressive scenario for the UK, online grocery with scheduled home delivery could be the largest channel in the UK by 2030, larger than supermarkets. That is astounding, right? But online is not an easy business for grocers, right? It's profitability is elusive. Um, what are the one or two most important things that grocery retailers need to be doing today when it comes to e-commerce? What do they absolutely need to be getting right?
3: Yeah, so online indeed is a big challenge right? and a big opportunity at the same time. Indeed, we believe that um, the online grocery sales will at least double again till 2030, as you say, in the most aggressive scenario, even more than that, Um so I think the most important thing as a retailer actually is to build on that and actually size this opportunity right and really go after this sales. I think that's the first step. The second step indeed then is profitability of it is a challenge. There are very few players in Europe that earn money with it. And I think uh, there are several elements to this um, to make this work. I think one thing is that we also see in the online businesses that the value proposition online become much more differentiated while in the past being online was the main offering, uh, we now see a lot of players um, offering much more specific uh, value propositions. Is it all organic? Is it more local? Is it um, like quick commerce, like a convenience offering online? So I think one thing we see is that the online starts to develop into different formats and banners like like we saw it offline. And we actually see um, consumers buying with several online shops and splitting their purchase across several online shops like they did offline as well. I think that's one of the first important elements that um, it's important to sharpen the value proposition and really target it to a certain customer segment and a certain shopping missions. Um, Then I think all the operational excellence and automation is another important lever um, to increase profitability. Um, Another one is uh, things like retail media, um, where um, the retailers actually sell advertising space on their websites to CPGs using um, also all the consumer data they have to to allow for great targeting. Um, uh, This will also be an important driver of profitability. We see actually some of the best players achieving 10% of their online sales now through this advertising sales. Uh, And this is being an important contributor to their uh, bottom line.
1: Yeah, I think Daniel framed it nicely in terms of, you know, what you need to do to win. I think what's interesting in the US markets, Canada, to some extent, and and a bit in Mexico is just the development of e-commerce looks so different. You mentioned scheduled delivery, perhaps being the the largest uh, portion of share. Um, That is certainly not the trend in the US. I mean, it is a push towards instant and it is a push towards faster and speed, and that's where the growth has been. And, and you're seeing the, the merger of uh, grocery delivery with um, the DoorDashes of the world, the Grubhubs of the world, but with ready to eat and those meal occasions as well. Many of the grocers in the US are now really having to face the, the, the decision of, do you try to build this yourself or who do you partner with? And obviously through the pandemic, a significant number of grocers uh really accelerated their partnerships with instacart and shift and others of the world um and i think they're taking a step back now to say as we as we think about uh, where this goes how much of this do i want to own and 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 how much do i want to have a partner lead for me and daniel hit on a few of the big drivers of that decision um, who owns the customer data and who controls the experience that the customer is having because Ultimately, um, that's a big portion of of repeat traffic and loyalty um, that we see in the US. But just to ground in the facts in the US, it was uh, about 3.9% online penetration in December of 2019, before the pandemic. We're now sitting in the low teens. And while I don't think um, our projections are that e-commerce gets to the level that Daniel alluded to in in Europe, by by 2030, it's not significantly behind. Uh, Mid-20s is sort of what we would see in the US. and again, it raises a lot of questions that uh, in terms of delivering on it profitably, Monica, that you raised around, is now the time to, to rethink your supply chain that delivers that. But uh, it's been a fascinating journey. Um, I think it's, it really is the battleground that uh, we think is gonna shape the sector for the next five years. I think it's fascinating to just to see how many grocers are, are inserting themselves into new markets without a brick and mortar presence. There are a number of grocers uh, doing that the interesting new uh competitive landscape is going to evolve dramatically and, and i think it's going to be fascinating to watch
2: yeah asia is is again very very different by country if i take china on the one end there is oh, you know, the vast majority is in the next 30 minutes there is some next day uh, but you know a hell of a lot is in the 30 minutes delivery and a very different model uh, if you will than more the classic grocery basket out of supermarkets which next day uh, or same day which you can make a decent margin on. I think a couple of things to watch. Uh, for sure, media monetization. Uh, we see the big players very aggressively moving there. Tech uh, players already there. Having second area is, um, uh, is around you know, to bills point supply chain. Traditionally, uh, labor has not been uh, expensive here in many countries, but now it's becoming so. How do you organize that? How do you make your supply chain more resilient and fit uh, to fit through your kind of omni-channel model? A final piece of this is, you know, we see a huge surge in um, uh, in data-driven systems of personalization, but also related to it, loyalty, and in part by, I think, driven by the unique Asian-ness of super apps, so uh, many, many different apps, and kind of then the existing grocery player saying, okay, how do we compete against some of these super apps, and how do we create our own ecosystems, you know, put together... Uh, buy a loyalty system where we can create a little bit of a reinforcing loop for customers to come more often. I would say, by and large, uh, quite a lot of the Asian retailers are struggling to make money still um, in online sales. I think they're less developed
1: from that perspective compared to Europe. And what's interesting in the in the U.S. is is everyone's asking what's happening in Asia with the super apps, and is that what we should be doing? And there's probably some learnings of of uh, what's actually working versus not, and how should that translate to to what happens in the U.S.
2: Yeah, and I would also say that most of our, most, most retailers here are actually no longer retailers, right? They also have patents, they have fintech players. They are also often producers, so they're also CPG producers. They also have an advertising business, but also media business. They go into gaming. It's almost hard to say the state of grocery in China, to a certain extent, kind of doesn't exist anymore from an industry perspective
0: let's talk about labor and talent. So you guys have have brought that up as well. It's a huge issue in retail. We're seeing, you know, rising attrition, employees demanding more flexibility, automations, changing the types of skills that retailers need, et cetera. And obviously we can point to many examples of things that retailers are already doing on the talent front, whether it's, you know, higher hourly wages, tuition reimbursement, you know, reskilling and upskilling programs. Uh, distinct career paths to attract digital talent and all of that. But what are you seeing that's actually working? Like what is truly making an impact? What have you seen retailers do on the talent front that has been really effective?
1: Do you think that is one of the big challenges? And to say what is really working, particularly in the grocery sector, uh, there's not a long list right now that you could say, hey, look, this is what everyone should be doing. I think there is a lot of trial. And I would separate as well the what's happening to make corporate centers attractive, what's ha- what's happening to make distribution centers attractive, what's what's happening to make stores um, attractive. And I, I think in stores, what's been interesting to see are folks that are actually trying to rethink what's the value proposition um, to the department manager in, in produce, uh, for the department manager in in meat or um, who's driving the customer experience desk? And so um, there are some innovative things, I think, going on around how are people seeing career paths evolve? Um, and so there are some uh, some folks that are starting to think about how do i how do I really rethink the career pathing in the way that that people stay in this industry? Because to your point, the um, there's always been a lot of attrition, particularly at the the front desk checkout and some of the other kind of daily kind of tasking um, roles. But the real core of what drives the performance of a store are those department managers. I think there have been folks that are looking at store managers, department managers, and thinking creatively about what are the career paths I can offer them? What are the kind of step out roles or special projects that can be offered to them? What are the ways they can learn and develop through offline learning and training that broaden their skill set beyond just the core of maybe what they're doing today? Um, that are interesting but obviously the the list still even in that is, isn't six isn't substantially long
3: when we actually ask the ceos what their top priority or top concerns are in at the moment um finding the right talent it comes out on number two directly after inflation and when we asked the same question last year um talent was not in the top 10 so this really jumped up to the second place, and it's really a big challenge. Also, when you look at job vacancies in the European Union, in retail, they are on a record high. So it's really difficult to find them enough talent and the right talent. And this is traditional roles like butchers, bakers, store associates, but it's also newer roles, right? Like um, in the tech field, uh, in IT, in analytics. Um so basically in all of these roles, there are not enough people and attrition is at the record high level. Many of the retailers reacted um, in the last months offering higher pay, also compensating for the inflation so um, to increase um, the buying power of, the, of their employees again. right? But I think what we find in research is that a higher pay is only part of it and it's actually not what makes people stay What makes people stay is if they have an environment where they like to work, right? If they go along well with their boss, um, if they belong to the company and have an environment where they can feel belonging, um, where they have good career opportunities, as Bill was mentioning. So um, I think some of the most interesting things I've seen is really on retailers that started to offer training programs for their department managers and store managers on how to lead how to improve it's not a solution to everything but i think it's one of the most interesting things i've seen so far
2: yeah i wouldn't say we've particularly cracked that in asia i think in some markets there is still more labor available than in europe and the us Uh, that being said i think what we see here and actually interestingly enough some of the best practices are coming from the hyperscalers. so programs around how do you lead with purpose how do you scale fast how do you create entrepreneurship and frontline you know and founder's mindset if you started this you With two people five years ago, you're now thousands of people. How do you make that happen, right? So I think quite a lot of the the best practices are around how do I create purpose? uh, What is my purpose as a company? And how do I get everybody excited around that? How do I then make that practical in values and kind of in the the fabric of of the company on how we work so that I empower sufficiently the next generation
0: So I'll ask one more question. Um, You know, you've interviewed lots of CEOs for these reports and you counsel many of them uh, on a daily basis. What is the one message that you'd give today's grocery CEOs? Um, In other words, if they do only one thing in 2022, what should that one thing be?
3: They should take bold moves um, in adapting their commercial offering to the current environment. Uh, we see dramatic shifts uh, with the polarization of the consumers, right? Um, and I think players that are taking bold moves and strengthening their offering for the people that are looking to save money, as well as taking steps for the people that want to pay more for premium quality, sustainable, uh, sustainable products or health. I think the ones that really go bold uh, um, along these trends uh, will benefit from this current situation and will... Um, come out much stronger out of the current crisis.
1: My simple one is invest in your people. Um, I think there's, there's such a pull for talent and it continues to be that way. And, um, y- you know, all the things that Daniel has described and, and Demka has in terms of the evolution of the industry. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of leadership needed in this sector. And uh, I'd really encourage everybody to be investing in... Uh, um, all parts of, of their organizations from the, the corporate centers to the store managers and store employees. But um, that's my big message.
2: I was going to go somewhere. I was going to say, invest in capabilities being at the digital capabilities and related cool stuff around retail media, but also basic core cost saving, private brand development. You know, how do I run my stores? What I feel very excited about is the speed by which new businesses gets built from zero to three months first version, 12 months fully fledged. I mean, these things go so fast. I would say there's where Asia has you know, something um, to learn the rest of the world um, is the speed by which things go. Um, and talking last, uh, last year to retail, I was talking about retail media being 1%. And this year it's 4%. And I can tell you that speed I never see in the, in the rest of the world
1: maybe the last thing I would leave with is um, Europe has been so far ahead on private label, but what we're seeing now in terms of innovation and um, it's not just a, Hey, how do we introduce something that that's a cheaper national brand equivalent? Um, But actually how do we differentiate our stores with a new program or platform that's in the middle tier premium tier of private label? I mean, I think that's going to be a fascinating um, space that uh, transpires in, in North America over the next two years.
2: Next great category for retailers, and I generally think, it's going to be the next ready to eat meals is the alternative protein space. It's a massive thing. It is big. It's currently it's very local. Taste continues to be local, so retailers like in ready to eat, uh, ready to cook meals will play an incredibly big role in shaping that. I think it's still very very early days this part of the world, uh, but I think that's going to be something to watch out for.
3: I fully agree. Um, alternative proteins, I think, are the next battlefield, what other people often don't know is that the food system makes about 34% of the total greenhouse gas emissions globally. And most of it comes actually from meat and dairy. And I think we see a lot ongoing uh, in Europe, a lot of startups in the field. I actually uh, have clients, uh, grocers that are acquiring um, alternative protein producers um, to start building this as a differentiation factor to point, I think this is indeed one of the big next waves and it's becoming the, the next fresh or the next fruit and vegetable category, right? Uh, we always say fruit and vegetable is the big differentiator. I think uh, alternative proteins, to Dymfke's point, can be one of the next uh, of that, um, in that magnitude.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on mckinsey.com very soon to suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer_podcast@mckinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on mckinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.